are so amazing. That here this morning, your church gathered here in ten thousands of other places, believing, believing the testimony of those you have chosen, who declared we have seen him, touched him. And down through the centuries we stand here. For Lord Jesus, you have since your resurrection ascended and intercede and you have sent the very Spirit of God into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. Oh, let that experience with eternal ramifications be true of every child and grown person in this room. Holy Spirit, continue upon our hearts, seeing and reveling in this glorious gospel this morning. Amen. You may be seated. Please turn in the historical document that we call the Gospel according to Luke. I will be reading from Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told them these things or told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. There is a lot 
of recorded history in the world throughout the centuries. But no documentation of any event in history comes close to the importance of the historical bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. You see, billions upon billions of things, even right now in this world, are true. But they're just not that important. What did you eat for lunch last Wednesday, Nathan? I don't care either. Even if I knew the truth of what you ate. But there are other things that if they were true are really important to know. I mean, is there a meteorite approaching Earth right now? Be good to know. But of many of those important things that are proclaimed or you hear on the news or read in the newspaper, they're just not true. Again, why waste my time? I have on my desk a piece of paper. It's underneath my see-through mat, and there are three crucial questions written on it, which would do you well through most of life. To do your marriage, to read the newspaper, to listen to the news, or a book you're reading, or a preacher you're listening to. And those three questions are these. What is someone saying? Secondly, is it true? Thirdly, what of it? What of it? Those three questions certainly apply to our passage this morning. They apply to the whole message of Christianity because that first question, what is someone saying? This is what they're saying. That there are eyewitnesses who are testifying that Jesus from Nazareth, this public itinerant preacher for a few years in, in the Jewish land of Judea, they're saying that after he was killed on a Roman cross, dead, 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 and placed in a little cave tomb. They're saying he died to fulfill the prophecies of the sacrificial system so that he would bear the sins of all who would believe in him, wipe them out, they would be utterly forgiven forever and be saved unto enjoying God for all eternity. And they're saying he proved it by that next Sunday rising from the dead. Now, resuscitation, they're saying that human being's dead body came to a new form of physical, resurrected immortality as a human being. That's what they're saying. That's the first question. And that means these other two questions. Is it true? And what of it need to be approached? The, the third question, what of it, is obvious. I mean, just for a minute, we'll get to the truth. If that's true, there is no possible greater news in all of human existence. 
So therefore, that makes the second question worthwhile of asking. Is it true? Is it true? If it's not true, then it doesn't matter how great the news is. It's true about everything. I don't know if other people get these. As a pastor for years, I get these emails from some African woman with a very long African name and different names all the time. My husband has died and he's worth millions and we would love to donate a bunch of that money to your church. That's great news. We could use it. So what do I do? I hit delete. Because I'm not a dummy. I know it's not true. I know what she's saying. Or whoever's behind it. In and of itself, what of it? If it were true, it'd be great news. But that third one doesn't pass the muster. Don't waste your time. It's not true. And so the question remains concerning what we see here in Luke. Is it true? And so we turn to the issue of the credibility and the reliability of the witnesses of this historical account. And the historian, Luke, begins his document with these words. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses, and servants of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account. And so, the truthfulness and the reliability of the eyewitnesses is crucial. It's crucial because Christianity is unique. Unique from all the other major religions in the world. Christianity is not primarily a system of doctrines. It is not primarily a system of moral codes, how to make society better and get along in life better as long as you live down here. That is not, those are, those are fruits of Christianity, but it is not primarily that. Christianity is founded upon the seemingly ludicrous, impossible proposition that Jesus, who was killed brutally, confirmed dead, got cold and started and got hard in rigor mortis, placed in a tomb, and for at least 40 hours, it is proclaiming that one rose from the dead to new human resurrection life. So let's go to this part of Luke's historical document, chapter 24. I'm going to begin with the verse that begins before 24, verse 1. And they returned, okay, the women, we're going to see that he's talking about, that followed Jesus everywhere for the last few years. They were there when Jesus 
was put in the tomb on Friday. Then, and this is Friday right here, they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, as the sun went down Friday evening, all the way to Saturday evening, on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. Okay, got to picture it. These women are depressed. These women are grieving with no hope. And so as they journey through the streets of Jerusalem in the dark and go out that gate before dawn on early Sunday morning, all they are expecting when they get to that garden tomb is more crying and more grief as they anoint the body to try to keep the death smell down. That's it. If you go spend a couple hundred bucks on flowers and go to the local funeral home, and when you get there, you don't expect an empty coffin. And if you did, none of us are going to go, wow, my loved one must have risen from the dead. Neither did they. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. First, the stone is this massive wheel-like stone that can roll, but it takes several very strong men to move it. They're hoping the guards would be there and help them out and move the stone and put some more spices on the body because it can get very stinky so that when they can visit and see the face when they take the cloth off. And according to Matthew, he's the one that lets us know there are guards there. So here, here's fact number one. The tomb was empty. The body of Jesus was not there. See, if the tomb had not been empty, and this is a silly tale of these women, 50 days later, when Peter and John and James and the other apostles and the other disciples started proclaiming publicly in the temple that this Jesus whom the Jewish leaders are responsible for putting to death has risen from the dead, all they had to do is go to the tomb and get the body. They didn't because we the body was gone. The body is not there. And all the different scenarios the critics bring up to say, okay, maybe the tomb got empty this way. Well, first of all, the guards who were there, they did it. They had no motive. And if you say bribery, they're going to say, yeah, we'll take, that's enough money for me to risk my life and toy with the body by stealing it. 
which is a death sentence to them, that doesn't work. The disciples of him came and stole the body away, really. I mean, the Jewish leaders did try that one, and because the body was gone, the guards are very scared. And they bribe them to just say that's what happened. We're going to do everything. We're going to protect you. Okay, we'll protect you. But that Peter, the one who fled days earlier, all the disciples are hiding out. They are depressed and fearful and confused. And they decided within 40 hours, let's go pull off this grave robbery with Roman guards stationed right there. Doesn't work. Assume the impossible that they did that. Well, then the inconceivable would have happened for the next 30 or 40 years. They stole the body. They know there's no resurrection. They started preaching that there was, and not one of them cracked. For decades, not one of them cracked, even while they're being beaten with rods and whipped and imprisoned. And most of the 11 put to death eventually for their testimony that he is risen. We touched him, saw him, ate with him for a good period of time after he was dead. Doesn't work. So let's go back to the tomb. These women are in mourning, distressed. They get there. It's rolled away, nobody, and then Luke continues on in verse 4. And they're trying to figure out what the heck's going on. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and they were frightened, or as they were frightened, and bowed their faces to the ground. That's normally what you do when you see an angel. The men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but has risen. Okay, they're afraid because they knew this was a supernatural something. And the angels and what they say implies you should have known better to think that he's going to be dead still. It just seems, okay, say so they go on and they say this to him, remember how your Jesus told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified. And on the third day, rise. Don't you remember? Verse 8, and they remembered his words. Like Luke 9.22 where we read, And Jesus strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said it again and again, particularly in that long, months-long journey to Jerusalem. But 
The women, is it remembered? Of course. Oh, yeah. He said a lot of things. And not only that, Jesus spoke in parables. He spoke in metaphors. And so as they're all journeying to Jerusalem, they're not taking him literally. There is no category to take what he's saying literally. In other words, as they're going to Jerusalem, they're not thinking, oh, okay, great, got it, you're going to die and rise. This, okay, whoo, do you need us to help you get killed? I mean, this will be great. They're not thinking we're going there. He's going to die. That's going to be a bummer, but he's going to rise from the dead. And when's this thing going to happen? Can't wait. That's not what any of them are really thinking, though he said it again and again. But now, on this Sunday morning, these women watched him be slowly tortured to death. Watched him taken down from the cross. Followed to the tomb, being cleaned and some spices and wrapped, mummy-like in grave clothes. Then they went home and prepared spices. And at least 36 hours later then, they go back to the tomb. It's empty. And two creatures scare the bejeebies out of them and tell them he has risen from the dead. Look at verses 8 and 9. And they remembered his words, and their eyes are open. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the rest of the disciples. But before they got back into Jerusalem to where the eleven and the other disciples are hiding out, Matthew tells us something else transpired between that. says it this way. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Hi. And they came up and they took hold of his feet and they worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Don't be afraid. Women were the first to see the risen Jesus. In the beginning, God created man, male and female. He created them. The female, as a female, is beautiful. The male, as a male, is beautiful. They are made in the image of God. They are equal 
in their humanity, and they are utterly distinct as male and female. And these, at least five, maybe eight, maybe ten, we don't know how many women that he's referring to. At least five. These females were the first to see the resurrected Jesus. And it's recorded that way, which is really strong evidence of the careful recording of what actually transpired. Because women in first century Judaism were not even allowed to testify. They weren't qualified as witnesses. So if they're making up an account, let's make up an account. Oh, by the way, let's have the first witnesses be women. Read on. So now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. These particularly the eleven, are devastated men. And they were not impressed at all with what the women had to say. To them, it was empty storytelling. It was babbling, silly talk. And we would have all done the same. But, but these particular 11 men, these were the special men whom Jesus handpicked out of hundreds of disciples to be his apostles. And they will be Christ in his resurrection. And on top of that, they will be the ones upon whom the foundation of Christianity is built. The ones to whom Jesus told privately again and again, I'm going to suffer and die and rise from the dead. And so what do they do when these women come bearing witness of the resurrection? They dismiss them as fools. But Peter, Peter had a really bad last couple days after he fled from Caiaphas's courtyard early in that morning in tears and utter shame. What did the women say? And he began to think. Jesus did say some very bizarre things that actually happened. He did tell me just a few days ago, I was going to deny I even knew him, along with a rooster crowing it. He did rebuke me last week when I said, no, Jesus, you're not going to die. I'll never let him. God forbid it. And he rebuked me as if I'm Satan speaking, and he did die. He did say something about So verse 12, but Peter rose and ran to the two. 
stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. He went home marveling at what had happened. Peter was not the only one who ran to the tomb that day. John, the son of Zebedee, an eyewitness, lets us know, I ran too. This is how he gives his eyewitness account. So Peter went out with the other disciple. That's how John refers to himself. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths. Excuse me. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there. But he, that is I, John, did not go in. Then... Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head not lying with the linen cloths but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb First, also went in, and he saw and believed. So Peter and John saw the linen wrappings, the grave clothes, lying there. But Jesus' body was not inside of them. If someone had stolen the body, they would not have said, let's spend some time unwrapping all the grave clothes first and then take the body. Jesus' body passed right through the grave clothes. And they were left right there, wrapped around nothing. And that face cloth that you can just easily remove when you go to the tomb was taken and folded nicely and put over there. All of that, yes, is against physics. But that's what they testified to. This shows that Jesus, he didn't, in his rising from the dead, wake up and say, let me unwrap all these mummy-like clothes. No, he was resurrected. His physical dead body was transformed into an immortal body that could pass right through cloth. And over the next six weeks, Jesus will make many appearances to the leaven, to the women, and to many other disciples. They will be in a room, no door will open, and all of a sudden He will be there, and He will teach them, and He will talk with them. And then, He's gone again. 
and he'll eat fish with them. He will say, as he does later that evening, Thomas isn't there, that's like eight days later, he's going to say, touch me. Not just a ghost. It's human resurrection. Life. The Apostle Paul describes Jesus' resurrected body this way. And by the way, he's also describing your future resurrection body if you belong to Jesus. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first of many more to come. The, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of a body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable, can never perish again. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It is raised in power. That's what they were encountering. And there is no way to explain how these men who were utterly transformed from cowardly, fearful, depressed, confused men into bold witnesses who were ready to die for their testimony of the resurrection of Jesus. There's no way to explain it. Except for the fact that they did sit down with. They did Eat with. They did talk to on numerous occasions with this once dead Jesus. And so they exploded into public proclamation. As it began on the day of Pentecost where Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of sinful men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. Jesus' resurrection, it confirms everything he said and everything he did. It confirms that He did come 
to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to be the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world as God would punish him imputing the sins of all his people upon Jesus. And thus, penalty paid in full. It confirms it. Eight days later, Thomas, who had not seen him yet, Jesus appears in the world. Touch me. My hands, put your hand here in my side, Thomas. My Lord and my God. Yes, Thomas. Yes, and you've believed because you have seen me. Blessed are all of those who have not seen and yet believe. And so decades later, the Apostle Paul will write to a bunch of these believers way off in the capital of the Roman Empire in Rome. And he will write saying this to them as he says to every person in this room. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And it's absolutely true, therefore, for any of us in this room, in order to be saved by Jesus, we must personally come to Him to love the truth of the gospel, of this good news of His coming, His life, His death, and His historical, actual, factual resurrection of the dead. And for that to happen, it's absolutely true that that is a spiritual work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Yes. It is subjective. And I have subjective feelings when I hold my wife's hand. But she's objectively there and I'm objectively holding the hand. You must have that. But having said that, none of our subjective beliefs, none of our subjective feelings about Jesus make the gospel true. I can believe that the moon is made of cheese, but it doesn't make it so. And we know now, well, some of you might not believe it, but I hope there's none of you in here, but we have gone to the moon, and it's dirt. It's not cheese. And so Jesus was either raised from the dead to 
new human immortality or not. Period. And so remember where we began this sermon with the three questions. What is someone saying? Is it true? And what of it? What is being said is clear. Christ is risen. And faith in that Jesus is the only way to salvation from the guilt of our sin unto our own resurrected life promise someday to enjoy God forever. That's what's being said. Okay, what of that? It doesn't get any better or more important than that. And therefore, the most crucial question is, is it true? And I've tried to show, absolutely. The tomb was and remains empty. Mary and Mary and Joanna and a number of other women that day were encountered by the Lord Jesus and they grabbed physical feet. And his apostles and many others over a period of six weeks were encountered by the resurrected Lord Jesus. And so the Apostle Paul, he sums up the core and the foundation of Christianity. I'm going to pause for a moment. Why? There are people who love Bible, who call religion if it works and makes for temporal life down here in our villages and society better, then that's what religion's really for. Dennis Prager just came out with his new so-called commentary, we'll see how he does that, of Exodus. That's where he's coming from in doing it. It'll be some helpful things. I like Dennis. Some of you know because right now there's a very popular name in our culture right now, particularly with conservatives named Jordan Peterson, who I show, I watch videos of. I lo- he's got a lot of good things to say. I read his new book. But see, for him, he uses Bible stories all the time. He loves the myths because they teach humanity something. But when you do, you listen very carefully. The difference is, he's not a believer. He doesn't believe what I just said. Glean from what's true in the world. Be careful how you do it. Back to Paul. He sums up what the core of Christianity really is this way. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in fulfillment of the Scriptures. And that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in fulfillment of the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Peter. Then 
to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom, as I write, are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to his brother James. And then to all of the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Jesus is risen. He is risen truly. He is risen indeed. And after he ascended, his apostles and his disciples and the men and the women, they remembered. They remembered the Last Supper and what he said when he took the bread and broke it and handed it to them and they each had a piece. And he said, take it. For this is my body which will be given for you. And he took the cup also after the meal. And he said, take and drink for this is my blood. It's the blood of the new covenant. And as they remember that, post-resurrection, it is a joyous experience in that He, our resurrected Savior, suffered and died for my sin in my place. Conquered death for me forever. And for all who would believe. And so as we're singing, all of us baptized believers will be taken of the bread and the cup and holding. And we will pray over this together as our Savior who is ascended will be interceding for us. Oh, Father, you are so good in the gift of your Son, as Paul tells us. He did not, you did not hold him back, but you gave him up. You gave him to become human, and you gave him up on the cross, and you poured out your wrath upon him, which was toward us. And death couldn't hold him, for he was sinless. He was and is God manifested in the flesh. And you defeated and conquered death. And it's so precious to us as we are all on this side, this side of death, which lay before every one of us. But our hope is sure, for Jesus is risen indeed. Amen. Let us stand.